John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. In this particular passage of Scripture, we find Jesus confronting the great enemy death in verses 38 through 39. We see Jesus encouraging everyone around him to believe a great promise of faith in verse 40. Praying with a great purpose, hope, in verses 41 and 42. Shouting with great power, love, in verses 43 and 44. Responding with divided hearts. The, those who hear and understand and those who hear and ignore and reject. The raising of Lazarus in the 11th chapter of John is, as we have seen as we continue our study, the seventh sign Recorded in the gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus has healed the nobleman's son in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Jesus has healed the paralyzed man in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Jesus has fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Jesus has walked on the water in chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. And Jesus has healed the blind man in chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. And now in chapter 11, he brings a dead man back to life. And in that story, we are reminded fundamentally in the most primitive way imaginable imaginable that resurrection from the dead, the giving of life to that which is dead becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of what it means to be saved. Dark becomes light. Death becomes life. As a matter of fact, John's gospel is filled with life. In John's gospel, the word life appears some 36 times. And we've already learned that Jesus imparts resurrection life. Remember what we already learned in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus imparts spiritual life. Remember what he says. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then Jesus imparts eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Resurrection life, spiritual life, eternal life. And no story in the New Testament provides a more dramatic or powerful illustration, at least for me, of what it means to be a lost sinner and find life in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I believed and received Christ as a teenager in March 1973. As a matter of fact, this very chapter and this very passage was the subject of the preacher's message, that cool spring evening in the temporary tent that housed what was then known as Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And like Lazarus, I was dead, spiritually dead in verse 14. Like Lazarus, I was in the process of. Of unraveling. I was decaying, like verse 39. Like Lazarus, I was raised and given life. Like Lazarus, I was set free. Like Lazarus, I caused quite a stir. And the reason is because dead people typically don't come back to life. And you might think I'm exaggerating. But the reality is when I was growing up, particularly in high school, I was that person that your parents warned you to stay away from. I was that person who, when your parents would speak to you and say, bad company corrupts morals, they were talking about me. In high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. My brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. Now, see, we're talking about a troubled family. That's a family in trouble. And when a walking miracle comes back to school, it creates quite a stir. And the same is going to be true in the life of Lazarus. It begins with the confrontation of a great enemy. Look in verse 38. It says, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, again, for the second time in the narrative, Jesus groans and a description of the tomb is given. It is a cave. That means it is an orifice, if you will, that's been hollowed out of the side of a mountain. It's either a, a natural cave or it's a man-made cave. And the area in and around Jerusalem, as I've already indicated to you, there is a vast geologic deposit of limestone. And so natural caves form everywhere. And a recess was either cut in a natural cave or an opening, and then a huge stone was fitted either in a slot or a groove in front of the cave. And there would, there would have been inside of the cave a recess or a ledge where the body of Lazarus was lying, four days dead, wrapped from head to foot in white linen cloth. And remember what the stone was meant to do. The stone was meant to hide death. 
the stone was meant to mask the odor of decay, the stench that would have been emitting from that place. And the stone wasn't meant to keep the dead person inside of the grave. It was to protect the living from the process that was going on inside of the cave. And so it becomes a type and a picture of you and of me. That body that you carry around with you is corrupting, decaying. You know, there comes a point in everybody's life, I think it's about 18 years old, maybe 19 years old, when you physically form about as good as you're going to get. And then from that point on, it's all sort of downhill. Now, in a perfect world, I might stretch it to 25. You might come to that plateau when you're 30. But there comes a point where you're going up and then you're going down. I don't know where you're at in that point. But I passed the point a long time ago. Jesus groans. As a matter of fact, remember what we've seen earlier in the text. We have seen Jesus weep on the outside and groan on the inside. And the reason being, of course, because he sees the pain in Mary and Martha. He is certainly aware of the grip that death has on all human beings. Jesus knows that we die because Adam brought death into the world. All of us having reaped the results of Adam's rebellion and disobedience and sin. We have inherited his guilt. We have inherited his sinful nature. And remember, when I use the term sinful nature, I mean his propensity to rebel and disobey God, his tendency to sin and, and again receive the punishment and execution of God. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die because of Jesus. We're able to trade our sin for his righteousness. We can trade our judgment for his forgiveness. And Jesus has been weeping on the outside, groaning on the inside. But in a moment, he'll be speaking from graveside. As a matter of fact, look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, speaking of Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Let's just, for purposes of discussion, take it at face value. Jesus orders the removal of the stone. Martha's comment is more than just a simple statement of fact. It constitutes an objection. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha's response is, bad idea. See, now we laugh. But I need you to understand something. Imagine one of your loved ones has died. And the funeral was four days earlier. And grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brother, sister, close friend, they come out. They find you at the gravesite. They show up and they say, dig him up. Dig him up and open the casket. 
What's your response? You're joking, right? No, I'm not. What are you talking about? Why would you ask such a thing? What are you thinking? And I want you to note something else. This objection comes not from an unbeliever, but from a believer. Remember, this comes from a person who in verse 22 in this same chapter, remember Martha said, but I know that even now whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give you. Well, now God is asking her something. Remove the stone. And the stone becomes a type, if you will, in a picture of every objection that everyone ever has of obeying God and obeying Christ. You see, Jesus has shown up. And why has Jesus shown up? To offer comfort and support? Many believers are content to leave things alone, happy with the status quo. They want enough of Jesus to provide for fire insurance, comfort in this world, personal security, problem-free living. But if Jesus shows up and says, I want you to do something about the sin and the death in your life, Take the stone and take it away. You know, I read an interesting article this week. It goes like this. Quote, nature presents no greater or more curious phenomenon than the habit of certain animals to conceal themselves and lie dormant in a lethargic sleep for weeks or months. It is known that in perfect hibernators, the process of nature are interrupted during the period of this long insensibility. Breathing is nearly, and in some animals, entirely suspended. And the temperature of the blood, even in the warmer-blooded animals, falls so low that how life can be maintained in them is a great mystery. A variety of Rocky Mountain ground squirrels when in perfect hibernation, says an observer, has a temperature that's only three degrees above the freezing point of water, and when taken from their burrows, they are so rigid as if they were not only dead, but frozen. But a few minutes in a warm room will show that they are not only alive, but full of life. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what does this have to do with anything? I don't know. It's just a great story. No, no, it actually does have a point. There is an illustration here. Lazarus is not hibernating. Lazarus hasn't just slowed his heartbeat to an infinitesimal close. This isn't a, a, a situation where he may or may not be alive and Jesus is going to revive him. He is fully, really, truly dead. And the reason why that becomes important is because when you are really, truly, fully dead, then there's no solution to the problem of death unless someone is willing to give you life. Warren Wiersbe writes, the unsaved person isn't simply sick. He or she is spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When a person is physically dead, she does not respond to such things as 
food or temperature or pain. When a person is spiritually dead, he does not respond to spiritual things. She has no interest in God, the Bible, Christians, the church, until the Holy Spirit begins to work in her heart. God warned Adam that disobedience would bring death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, calls hell the second death. That is the eternal death. What sinners dead to God's ways need is not an education, not medicine, not morality, not religion. They need a new life in Jesus Christ, unquote. And the reason why this becomes important, because when I, as a sinner, stood before God, it wasn't education that I needed. Well, you know, the reason why Gino acts out is because, well, he's a, he's a fool. The reason why Gino acts out is he needs medication. Now, I know there are those who would still go, Amen. Hey. You have to play with the cards you've been dealt. Gino needs medicine. What Gino really needs is morality. If he had morality, then maybe he wouldn't act out. You know, I grew up in a circumstance very much like some of yours. It wasn't the ideal of circumstances. My mother became pregnant with me when she was 15 years old. She had me when she was 16 years old. My father came to this country from the island of Sicily after World War II when he was about 10 or 11 years old. And when he was about 17 years old, he met my mother. And when he was 18 years old, he married my mother. And theirs was a life of constant stress and struggle, pain, abuse, so that at least two years into the marriage, my father, after repeated infidelity, my mother decided I've had enough. And she took me and my brother and she ran. She sold the worthless furniture that we had in our little crummy apartment. And she ran as far away from my father as she possibly could. And there were periods of reconciliation and breakup. My mother subsequently got pregnant for a third time. Then there was the divorce. And then there was another failed relationship and a fourth pregnancy. And then there was yet another failed relationship and a fifth pregnancy so that my mother had five children before she was 23 years of age. And because she dropped out of the 10th grade in order to have me, she couldn't get any job better than being a waitress. And so my brother and I would watch carefully where she put her tip jar and then we would go dig it up out of the backyard and steal money. We lived in a world where there were no boundaries, there were no prohibitions, there was no discipline. And we did pretty much whatever we wanted to do. And in that life of no boundaries, no discipline and no prohibitions, my brother and I found ourselves doing wicked things and doing them over and over and over again. Like Lazarus, I was truly, truly dead. Numb. 
the anger and the confusion was confused as life, but it but it really wasn't life. And I remember hearing the preacher quote this verse. In chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. When the preacher was preaching, he was preaching from the old King James. He said, Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been dead for days. I'll never forget. As loud as I'm talking to you, I heard a voice inside of my heart say, You stinketh. And I went, Yes, you stinketh. The raw sewage. The familiar odor of death is emanating From your heart, what was Mary's objection in the text became the observation of the Holy Spirit in my life. What is the past tense of stinketh? Stunketh? Whatever it is, that was me. You stink. Sinful behavior is almost always covered by excuses. But there it was in my heart. I don't know if you've ever smelled something that had died. But it's an unmistakable odor. Whether you come across a pet who, that, that has died or whether you come across an animal that has died in the road or whether or not you've stumbled onto the circumstances of death, it releases a, a, an unmistakable stench. And it's very, very difficult when someone comes up to you and says, well, why do you smell like death? It's hard to come up with an excuse. Well, because I am dead. And like Lazarus, I was already in the the process of decay. I remember going to bed at night. Angry. Upset with everyone and anyone who was willing to talk with me. Angry that I lived in this abject poverty. Angry that my mother couldn't form and maintain relationships. Angry that I didn't have a father who was present. Angry with with Christians in their phony baloney phrases and their phony baloney lifestyle and their hypocrisy and their plasticity. And I found myself in circumstances where all I wanted to do was hate everyone and everything. And so when someone finally asked me, hey, would you like to go to a concert at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa? I said, no. Why would I want to do something that stupid? And then they said, cheerleaders are coming and there's free food. And I go, okay. (laughs) But even as I said that, I'm thinking, this is wrong. Even with cheerleaders and free food, I don't want to go. But I went anyway. Because there was something fundamentally, tragically, really wrong with me. And in verse 40, look what it says. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, I need to draw your attention to something. Jesus is speaking to Martha. And when he says to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see each and every one of you have probably all heard the expression seeing is. But it's not true. At least not in the Bible. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. And and when Jesus says believing is seeing and the thing that you will see is the glory of God, you should ask this question. What is the glory of God? What does he mean? What's he talking about? In one sense, the glory of God is the overwhelming and unmistakable presence of God. The book of Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 2, speaks of God's glory as his overwhelming presence. The the glory of God is the overwhelming presence of God that can burn down the forests and boil the oceans dry. The glory of God is when God shows up and he begins to speak to you and talk to you and reveal the truth, not only about himself, but about you. Jesus is asking Martha to enter into the realm of faith. There comes a time when you have to conquer complaining and set aside the objection. There comes a time that even sincere questions that require a good, sound Bible answer has to be set aside. And that's what I tried to do that day. The person who brought me to Calvary Costa Mesa, I thought, okay, this is... This is stupid. Yes, there there are cheerleaders. Yes, this is food. I'm headed down on on the freeway with these freaks. And I don't know what to expect when I get to this church. And so I began to do what I always do. Argue. What about the problem of evil in the world? The guy who was driving David McCaffrey, he goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. See, I want to have an argument so I can win the argument. And so in my smug self-righteousness, I can keep the stone over the orifice of my own rotting, stinking, decaying heart. Because if the stone is rolled away, and if it's discovered that I'm really, truly, fundamentally, unequivocally, hopelessly, dead. Everyone's going to know it. And so I ask another question. Are you going to tell me that 750 million Hindus are going to rot in hell because they don't believe the way that you believe? Are you going to tell me that 500 million Muslims are going to go to hell because they don't believe the way that you believe? Gripping the wheel and he said, I don't know, man, but you will see. And no matter what I said and no matter how many times I answered, he came up with the same response. 
Many times we have questions and objections, but the questions and objections become not sincere questions and objections, but an excuse to put off what needs to be done. Loving him, trusting him, believing him. Jesus is inviting Martha into a world where you will experience mind blowing faith. So, I remember asking myself, is this possible? Could this person, Jesus, bring dead people back to life? Could this same Jesus bring me back to life? And all of a sudden, the 2,000 young people who were surrounding me sort of disappeared. And I began having a cosmic conversation. While the preacher spoke, I remember wondering if, if these things were so and if these things were real and whether or not faith and hope was beginning to well up inside of me. And I began to toy with the idea that maybe, maybe I could believe in Jesus for a brief moment. I set aside the objection, the doubt, the skepticism, because there was something else that welled up inside of me, a question so great. A need so great, a desire so great that I hardly could find words to express it. The deadness and the darkness as it welled up inside of me. The emptiness and the loneliness and the wickedness. I began to ask an entirely different question. Could Jesus love me? Could Jesus forgive me? Could Jesus love and forgive someone exactly like me? I was afraid to even ask the question. Because if the answer was no... then I suspected that I couldn't even begin to figure out how I was going to wake up the following morning. But he continued to read. Look what it says in verse 41. Then they took away the stone. The objections, the, the excuses are all gone. And from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And in verse 42, and I know that you always hear me because of the people who are standing by. I said this. Look what it says, that they may believe that you have sent me, not so that I can do some mind blowing parlor trick. Hey, look, I'm going to I'm going to freak everyone out. Can you imagine taking Jesus home? You go into the kitchen. You fill up a bowl of water and you go, Mom, Mom, watch this. Jesus, do that thing that you do. You know, the, the water and the wine thing. Stick your finger in there or, or whatever. Blow her mind. Hey, Jesus, let's go to the hospital and empty out the place just for fun. Jesus, 
let's go to Chick-fil-A and buy 10-piece nugget and one Chick-fil-A sandwich and then blow everybody's mind and give free nuggets and sandwiches to anyone and everyone who shows up and completely blow their mind. Jesus, let's go to a funeral parlor and absolutely, positively freak them out. But Jesus isn't praying for any of those purposes. He's praying in such a way that the person listening will come to the conclusion that Jesus has been sent by God for a specific task. And that specific task is to remedy the specific problem that you face. And the prayer of Jesus points to the purpose of Jesus. Jesus points out the ultimate purpose of the the prayer is that they may believe that you sent me. And then Jesus addresses God not as awesome, omnipotent power who occupies all of eternity. Dreadful God. He says, Father. And the reason why he says, Father, is because it speaks of an intimate and a continuous relationship. Jesus knows God as Father, and the Father knows Jesus as Son. We're taught to address God as Father and approach Him in the name of the Son. But just like a child who comes to his or her own parent, you come to your parent based on the relationship. You come to your parent boldly. You come to your parent respectfully. You come to your parent reverently. And Jesus repeats, I thank you that you've heard me. And He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He says it twice. I think he's doing it not just simply for the benefit of everyone who's listening. But for me. Jesus. Jesus. Is anyone listening? Do they hear what you're really saying? Jesus offers thanks to the Father and praise to the Father. He re- it reminds us of the glorious privilege that He can both speak and be heard. Jesus expresses a perfect and confident knowledge of God. And so in that expression, that purpose of prayer, look what it says. Number one, He does it to honor and worship God as Father. Number two, to secure what is necessary to live a holy and a righteous life in order to minister to others. Number three, to praise and thank God. Number four, to prove and demonstrate faith and confidence in God and number five to bear testimony and proclaim that Jesus is the one who's sent by God and as he's praying that prayer it says in verse 43 look what it says now when he had said these things he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come forth And that expression, he cried with a loud voice, it actually means shout. And I suspect that, like, when it says shout, it, like, really means shout. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it speaks of a time that the angel of the Lord will appear 
and there will be a trumpet will sound and a shout will ring forth from heaven. The Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. That expression, he crowd with a live voice, becomes in a very real sense a picture of our own future resurrection. And there are several key concepts we can glean from these very few words. The shout of Jesus matches the enormity of the miracle. I'm going to ask you a question. How much power does it take to raise the dead? You tell me. Let's do an experiment. We'll do a thought experiment. We'll all be little Albert Einstein's for a moment. I want you to imagine everyone who has ever lived from Adam to the very last person who will ever live. I want you to imagine every man, every woman, every child ever born in every generation. Could the sum and the substance, could the collective thoughts, goodwill, intentions, could the sum and the substance of every human being who's ever lived collectively will one person back to life? The answer is no. The answer is no. But there is a person that the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that He spoke and the worlds came into existence. With His words, He said, let there be light and there was light. He said, let there be life and life existed. The same voice that spoke the universe into creation speaks and Lazarus comes back to life. The shout of Jesus is powerful and the shout of Jesus is personal. And I remember someone said, hey, you know, there's a reason why Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I said, why? And he said, because if he just said, come forth, every dead thing in the sound of his voice would have become out of the nooks and the crannies of every tomb everywhere in Jerusalem. And it would have been night of the walking dead. But you know, it's really interesting. That very thing will happen. One day, every dead person will come back to life. That's what it says in John chapter 5, verse 25. Remember where it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in and of Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in and of Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear His voice and they they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Everyone will be the benefactor. Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he came back to life and because he comes back to life, everyone else will come back to life. Here's the question. How do the dead hear? How does Lazarus in the tomb hear? How does the shout of Jesus penetrate both the walls and the linen and the deadness of his own circumstances? I read this 
incredible illustration. The piano can produce different pitched sounds from 88 keys. The human ear can distinguish over 2,500 different tones. Even more remarkable than the variation in pitch that the human ear can detect is the intensity of sound which the human ear is capable of hearing. The human ear can detect sound frequencies that move the eardrum as slightly as a billionth of an inch. This incredibly small movement is less than the diameter of a hydrogen atom. Our hearing is sensitive, so sensitive that we can hear the faint sound of blood coursing through our own veins when standing in a soundproof room. Over 100,000 hearing receptors in the ears send impulses to our brain to be decoded and interpreted. Imagine Lazarus wrapped from head to foot with the napkin over the surface of his head. All of a sudden, he hears his own blood rushing through his own veins. And he opens his eyes. And he sees nothing and he says this is such a raw deal to be snatched from heaven for the earth to be taken from indescribable joy to well you know being with you But how? How in the world did something so dead hear something so powerful? Because God can do that. God can speak into your heart. It says in verse 44, And he who had died... Underline that and write your own name right next to it. Me. The person who was dead came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. The text tells us that Lazarus was bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Why do you suppose he includes these details? I'm going to suggest something to you. Because John wrote this book. The word translated grave clothes is chiarare. It's used only here in the New Testament. These are the winding sheets wrapped tightly around either a dead or an embalmed body. The word used to describe the cloth wrapped on the face is soderion. It's a borrowed word from the Latin. Sodar is the Latin expression that those that the Romans used in the in the, in the first century to des- describe the process of sweating. And so the Greeks adopted it and it literally became a sweat cloth. And the cloth was wrapped around the dead man's head, which would have made vision impossible. But again, do the math. Do dead people normally need to see? They normally don't. Do dead people wearing dead clothes need to get a wardrobe adjustment? 
Do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember the Munsters. Remember, Fred Gwynn played this guy named Herman Munster, and he had a wife named Lily, and they had a grandpa named Grandpa. And they had two kids. And then they had one person in the family. What was her name? The, the normal one. Marilyn? I think it was Marilyn. But you'll remember everyone in the family dressed always in the clothes that they'd been buried in. I remember looking at that going, that's kind of odd. I mean, you know, there comes a point when you're alive, you should dress alive. And it made me think that when Jesus brings us back to life, We need to act like living people, people who are alive in Christ, people who aren't bound and restricted by the things that would bind and restrict dead people. It doesn't take a miracle. It does not take a miracle to take grave clothes off of a dead body. The miracle is when the dead body comes back to life. And so when Jesus instructs them to say, unwrap him, the impossible becomes possible. Lazarus comes forth immediately, obediently, perfectly, visibly, unquestionably. When Jesus speaks, even corpses hear. And when the dead body of Jesus returns to life, it receives the personal care and attention of the Lord. In other words, when Jesus saves you, he continues with you. And the enormity of the miracle doesn't detract from the care and the devotion that Jesus is all of a sudden willing to extend to his friend. And when Jesus brought me back to life, he insisted that I abandon the clothes of death. And when I read this, I actually began to consider the possibility that if Jesus could do this for him, he could do it for me. And that's when everything changed. On that spring night, March 3rd, 1973, there were thousands, there was at least a thousand people in the tent. And I'll never forget the person speaking that evening extended an invitation for those who wanted to believe and receive, to believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, he gave an opportunity. And out of the thousand people who were there, and how many people came forward? Three. Me and two other people. I didn't tell you in the story that earlier I had ditched the people who had brought me. I was so frustrated. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. I found a place to sit by myself, lost in this crowd of of a group of people. And when I got up, the people who had brought me leaped to their feet and began to scream. And so I'm walking right up there. And you should have seen the utter look of disappointment on the preacher's face. 
And I'm thinking, how does this guy know me? It wasn't until years later that he told me that it wasn't unusual at Calvary in the 1970s, particularly at that time in that spring and summer, for literally hundreds of young people to come forward. That's part of the tragedy. In, in John chapter 11, verse 45, look at what it says. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. There is a bitter sweetness to this verse. Look, look at that word many. It should say all, shouldn't it? The reaction to the prayer, the reaction to the power of Jesus is divided. Some believe, but some cause trouble. The sensible response is believe. Again, John's gospel invites the reader or the listener. Think about it. He's turned the water into wine. He's healed the nobleman's son. He's healed the paralyzed man. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on the water. He's opened blind eyes. He's brought a dead person back to life. How can you listen to that and see that and remain unconcerned and unconvinced? But look what it says in verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. That's the testimony of unbelief. They're gripped with this obstinate, hardened, recalcitrant unbelief. They refuse to believe Jesus in spite of Overwhelming evidence, powerful evidence. They choose to ignore the evidence, evade the issue, even though Jesus insists on belief. And they lost. They lost. They lost their opportunity to see the glory of God. I, I couldn't do that. I had to go forward. I had to take a chance. And I did go forward. And I did pray. I prayed the prayer that I had seen in the text. I repeated the prayer of the minister. And my heart was lifted and the burden was taken away and the flood of light and the flood of love and the flood of forgiveness began to encircle my heart and I understood for the first time in my life that Jesus Christ wanted to have a personal friendship and relationship with me. The unbeliever is usually too polite to think in terms of getting rid of Jesus. But that's exactly where it says, but some of them went away to the Pharisees. Not only were they not willing to receive Jesus, they wanted to get rid of him. That's been my experience. There are people who will have him and there will be people who won't. And they'll say to their wife, they'll say to their husband, they'll say to their husband, their brother, their sister, their mother, whoever it happens to be, their family, their friend. They'll close their ears and they'll close their Bible and they'll refuse to come to the church. They close the Bible and they go, look, I, 
I've had it. No God, no Jesus, no church. I don't want that. And then they'll start putting the stones back on the orifice of the tomb that they call their life. They'll put another rock there. Well, why couldn't God make the evidence clearer? Put another stone. How can I trust the Bible? Put another stone. How do I know that this preacher isn't lying to me? Put another stone. What if Calvary's a cult? And pretty soon, the entryway is so secure. It's a fortress. You have no intention of ever believing. And by the way, from this point on, all the way to the end of John's Gospel, the rest of the Gospel will be filled with the religious leaders attempt to do away with Jesus forever. That's the challenge that you're facing and that I'm facing. The people who come and the people who go. The people who hear and the people who don't. The people who believe and the people who get up and find a way to ignore him for the rest of their life. That's the dividing line that some of you might be facing right now. But I'm hoping you'll do the right thing. I'm hoping that you'll ask and answer the same questions I did. Will Jesus hear my prayer? Will God hear my prayer? Will he forgive somebody like me? Could he change someone like me? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Let's stand for just a moment. I'm going to pray a prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that, Lord, you are the one who searches the hearts. Lord, I don't even for a moment pretend to have the skill, the wisdom, or the ability to manipulate someone into making a decision that they're unprepared or unwilling to make. And if for some reason someone foolishly believes me apart from the presence and the power of God and the Holy Spirit, if someone tries to talk themselves into Jesus, but the very real presence of God and the very real presence of Christ and the very real presence of the Holy Spirit isn't there moving and working and knocking and molding and shaping and transforming, I know that this is an exercise in futility. But Lord, if you are, if there is a man or a woman here, if there is a person who feels not just the uncomfortable presence, but the glorious presence of God and the power of Jesus to transform, to forgive and heal, to reconcile, Lord, I pray that they would receive you even now. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you and they would cry out for a change. Lord, I pray that they would experience life like I experienced life and forgiveness and hope. And I'm going to give them an opportunity to come forward. While the worship team is playing and while they are surrounded by people who love them and care about them and who 
<laughs> We're rooting for them to take that journey. Lord, I pray that they would come out born again, alive. Lord, move on their hearts. Lord, you call, called people publicly and openly. And so, Lord, I call them publicly and openly. Bring them now, Lord, because you did it. In Jesus' name, amen. Come.